What is in a bowling action? Uh, everyone who's played cricket, uh, depending on wherever you grew up, I'm sure as a kid, I did. Uh, I mimicked a bowling action. Some are supremely flawless, sexy, uh, timeless actions like Lily, Holding, Imran, Kapil, uh, Dale Stain, Alan Donald. But then some are mesmerizing. And going back to my childhood days when I began to play competitive cricket in the gully area and with my cousins, we used to have a plastic ball culture. There was literally no run-up. And we were trying to do our own version of body line. The ball wasn't, of course, a cricket ball, but it, it can hit you. And uh, there's one action that everybody in that era in 87, 88, 89 was trying to mimic was Patrick Patterson, Pato, uh, one of the fastest bowlers uh, of that period. He's definitely not the guest today, but I've invited someone who's uh, tracked Patrick Patterson back through his investigative uh, journalism, which is one of the best, I think, in cricket in the last few years and is also a very known voice in, in the field of cricket, uh, someone who covers cricket professionally. So on that note, let me bring my guest, uh, Bharat Sundaresan. Uh, I hope uh, I'm saying the name right. Uh, this is an exercise uh, I, sh I should have done before starting. But <laughs> No, actually, you got it absolutely fine. And like, you know, I've spent the last one and a half years in Australia and the last, what, 12, 13 years touring the cricket world, and I've heard various, various uh, renditions of my name. Especially, my name's fine, but like my dad's name. So it's like, <laughs> so I've gotten used to it, but you nailed it. You got it. I mean, I, I'm, I'm from India my... like you, so even my name exactly, is, yeah. my name is Sakib, but, has been, uh, yeah. has been, you know, pronounced many different ways since I moved to US like more than two decades <laughs> ago. So, yeah, uh, we share some. And the most, yeah, most common like pronunciation I get of mine because there is a spice called Baharat or something which I wasn't aware of before I moved here, and everybody just assumes like you know I was named after a spice which is I don't know I take it as a compliment in a way. <laughs> yeah, that, that's interesting. I mean, you know, when you move to different shores, uh, the world has its own way of uh, coming together, and then you learn some things about India after leaving India, and that's how <laughs> you know that's uh, been my journey here. But again, you are the guest and you'll unpack Patrick Patterson for our listeners. The article's out there. So, you know, anyone can go and read Bharat's work on Patrick, but it's also the author of a book on MS Dhoni and uh, your coverage with Crick Buzz and Indian Express is, uh, can be, can be Googled and a lot of informative pieces surface up even as recent as last year's ashes when you wrote about Steve Smith. So uh, a normal exercise on my podcast, I, uh, and in many podcasts, so, so what is your story? How did you get into cricket before we un start unpacking Pato? Oh, well, uh, it's interesting to see cricket. Like, I mean, like you said in, in your intro, you like everyone else, I was a big fan of cricket. I played a lot of cricket in the gully, in the building, played a bit of cricket for Shivaji Park. Like, you know, play. I, I unfortunately couldn't play for my school because we were a Catholic school, which did not, they didn't like cricket for some reason, the priests. So they only liked football and basketball. So, uh, like, I couldn't play for my school, but that was my journey. And, like, I was very closely associated with West Indies cricket from a young age for some reason. I was obsessed with them. Uh, used to get beaten up at home by my brother and my father because, like, you know, I always celebrated Tendulkar getting out and Lara getting 100 against India. So, like, you know, it was just one of those, uh, like, a very nerdy, like, existence. Like, I I've, I've always went beyond the whole just playing and just watching cricket. So my brother and I were quite nerdy that way. Uh, that's how it began. But then journalism, I'd never even considered as an option. It was really, I did my engineering like a good South Indian boy should. 
uh, because my brother had done the same. And but it, and you know, I grew my hair out. I was in a heavy metal band, and uh, you know how back then. And I'm pretty open talking about this now. Uh, with metal music and being in the circuit came a lot of other things, and I got kind of deeply involved with. Uh, the non-music side of the metal business back then in India and kind of lost my way uh, for a few years. Like I'm talking my late teens, early 20s. And uh, but then cricket really kept me grounded because that was the only thing that I kept going back to. I stopped playing by then, but, you know, following it and just I always I was the know-it-all of cricket in my little circle. And someone just suggested, well, you need to A, leave Bombay and B, maybe try your hand at journalism. You seem to know a lot about cricket. And that's how it happened completely by chance. It was not something I had planned or anyone had planned. It was basically my parents saying, well, uh, yeah, you better leave home and try to figure life out for yourself. That's what led me to journalism. Yeah, all, often all, all these you know good things uh, have an opportunity cost, I guess. And sometimes it's passion, sometimes it's... Uh you know, family situation. But yeah, thanks for sharing that. So uh, who are your cricket heroes growing up and who are your favorite cricket writers if there was such a thing? Because I grew up uh, in a generation where we consume a lot of sports star and sports world through Nirmal yeah. Shekhar, R. Mohan, Rohit Brijnath, and then Dr. Puri on, on the TV before Harsha Bhogle became a thing. So my cricket right, journey right. started in the 80s. Uh, who are your heroes uh, behind the column and on the pitch? On the pitch, it was just West Indies. Like, I did not really care about anyone but the West Indies. And it was, uh, like, ironic because, uh, you know, I started supporting them pretty much around the time they started losing because uh, I did not see the cricket in the 80s. I was born in 85. So uh, by the time I was, like, six or seven, and I ca- caught a glimpse of Patrick Patterson, to be honest, uh, they'd started, like, you know, the, the decline had slowly started to set in. Uh, so, like, yeah, my, Richie Richardson, who, like, you know, it, it's funny, like, now I'm very close to only West Indian cricketers mainly, like, I, I mean, I know a lot of Indian guys having been in the industry for this long, but I've always considered some of my closest friends in the industry to be West Indian, um, and, like, Richie Richardson is one of them, and he was my hero, just the way, he, you would remember, right, the way he was always in, in the hat, the way he used to play the cut shot, and there was just something about I remember crying when I saw Richie Richardson put on the helmet for the first and only time, I think, in that 95 series when Australia went and beat them. Uh, it, it almost felt like, you know, I, w- I was let down. And so it was only West Indies, of course, Lara and Walsh and uh, Ambrose and like, you know, it, it was all purely West Indians. And it, in terms of, to the extent that in my area where I lived in Bombay, I was like known for it. So when West Indies won, like people would come and congratulate me, like I did something. And uh, that practice still continues. When they won the World T20 in um, Calcutta, there was this one journalist from Trinidad, and when they won, everybody came to me and like were like you know congratulating me, like I'd done something. And then uh, I remember this friend of mine, Andrew Fernando, again a great writer from Sri Lanka, writes for Cricket Info, came to me and said. Was it Carlos Brathwaite who hit the four sixes, or was it you? Because it, I'm, I'm a little confused right now. So it's just one of those crazy things that uh, has always been a part of my life. So that, so like I said, on the field, West Indians, off the field. To be very honest, like yeah, I mean, I we always had like you know we always subscribed to the sports star mainly for the posters. Like my brother and I would have them on our wall. But uh, I wasn't such a big like I, I didn't read much, read much about cricket, but we watched a lot of cricket. So. My favorite commentator, again, I mean, there's a West Indian bias here, was Tony Cozier. Uh, and 
like you know and again so fortunate to have called him a friend towards the end of his life unfortunately but uh, it was mainly tony cozier obviously like the australian like you know in channel 9 and that was just so dreamy to wake up at 5 in the morning and my parents were very supportive i could even bunk school to watch cricket if i really thought it was necessary so yeah, that's been a plus yeah, part as well yeah right i mean it's important to have parents like that like to acknowledge that he's not going to do anything by going to school anyway so <laughs> at least let him like be happy at home uh, watching cricket so yeah of course bill lorry like you know i was a huge fan of him like i would mimic his voice and uh, yeah i think it was more commentators than than writers that i was really drawn to so right like i started reading cricket seriously much much later in life almost around the time i started writing that's that's quite that's quite uh, interesting journey there and uh, and a lot of us i guess that's what separates the men from the boys who go and work in cricket and then rest of us either do a podcast for a hobby or, <laughs> or follow this uh, live scoring apps or whatever but you know i'm sure a lot of indian pakistanis you know who probably had similar background can relate how cricket was such a novelty uh, in the 80s 90s and then tendulkar happened and you know it just uh, oh, yeah. changed changed the game so let's focus on patterson looks like we can invite you to another po- podcast because there's a lot of common resonance here but uh, patterson <laughs> is the topic so what intrigued yeah. you about him as a young boy i mean it was that slow action right how he was starting in his strides that's what we we, we used to mimic there was no run up but we all did the patterson you know jiggle and then we delivered with a left foot really extending uh, more than our ability uh, so what was the drawing point for you oh yeah yeah I, the bowling action for sure and like my uh, brother who's like 6 years my senior and i keep bringing up him up a lot because he's in the us as well by the way and uh, he like was a mad cricket fan and a lot of that came down to me so he would make get me to mimic a lot of bowling actions like when we were young like you know maybe i had the ability i don't know and one of them was patrick patterson and then every time like you know and i had only watched maybe like a couple of games of his because uh, and i think the name name just stuck it's it's such an like, alliterative like it's a nice name like patrick patterson so maybe that played a role but i remember whenever he would ask me to do a patrick patterson or a wakar yunus they always came back to back for some reason he would say oh they both wear headbands and he didn't have headbands like you know why would a 5 or 6 year old have a headband at home so he would like uh, bring out his waist belt and put it around my forehead and the buckle really hurt like you know it got stuck in my forehead so like the, my earliest memories of patrick patterson was like that pain in my forehead the buckle like going through and then uh, yeah I, you know we were so flexible back then when you think about it i could like lift my leg pretty high up and uh, and I, i'm a left like i, I bowl left arm but i that was one of the few actions i could pull off like bowling like you know trying right arm so uh, the bowling action like you said was one thing that uh, attracted me towards him and it was just this aura even back then like the way my father and brother would speak about him right like yeah yeah i mean they were holding and marshall something wild about this guy uh, people are scared of him and all that so like you know as a young child big west indies fan even back then when i was 6 or 7 he just stuck and I, i i thought like okay you know i didn't watch all those other guys that my father talks about but maybe this is the new generation maybe he's the guy like in you know, more than ambrose and walsh and bishop he was like if you remember he was spoken of as like the most uh, or the scariest of the lot so and and, and correct me of, if i'm wrong he was a bridge between the marshall garner holding era yeah and he was the first one of the ambrose walsh bishop era to come in and he shared uh in the same bowling as marshall and uh i think garner for a few years 
and uh, there was something about this guy and i remember the 87 88 tour to india this is you were yeah. probably too young but i'm sure you've <laughs> you you've read about yeah. it so he was yeah he was just such a terror for the indian batsmen at least that's how we felt watching him on tv uh <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah, absolutely right. Absolutely right. Yeah, I mean, I think Courtney was and him like grew up like you know Patrick grew up together. They went to the same school, so they were the same age. So Walsh broke in maybe a couple of years earlier in '85, I think. But uh, yeah, Patterson was that same era. And uh, there's this great story I heard about him like much later, just before I met him. That is, is uh, the you know Jamaica versus Barbados it used to be a big deal back then. um in their domestic competition and there was this game when a very young patrick patterson was bowling alongside michael holding and greenwich and haynes were like batting and apparently gordon greenwich had this uh i mean you would know better like his shirt was always whiter than the rest because he would love to like starch it a lot and uh, so apparently patrick patterson really tra- a young young patrick patterson who was called rambo back then uh really troubled Gordon Greenwich and uh stuck him like you know on the chest and apparently like the starch everything just flew off and like I had, I, I knew this guy who watched that game from the from the stadium he was at the stadium and uh he was like I've never seen Gordon Greenwich being like you know shook up and this was when he was at his prime in his like early 30s Greenwich that is so that was the, the, the almost like the first big impression he made on the main west indian team and soon after he was playing for them and uh yeah he was very much the bridge between that era and uh like the ambrose walsh and like you know if you just think of it ambrose walsh bishop and patterson should have been like something very very special as special if not more special than uh the marshall holding era so but i mean alas it didn't happen but uh yeah you're right he was the guy who uh or he him and like walsh to an extent was supposed to be the extension of that golden era. Yeah, I don't even know how many games the four of them played together. Bishop came a little later because Winston Benjamin yeah. was also part of the attack in and out uh, of the team and Marshall was phasing out. So, uh let's let's talk about the article itself. So, uh we can go back and forth and there could be a lot of anecdotes here. So, yeah. what triggered the article? I mean, uh, were you aware that he's missing or when you went to the tour or you wanted to uh, speak with him as he was one of your heroes growing up? What triggered the article and then what triggered the search and the curiosity that followed when you couldn't find him? Yeah, uh, I mean, curiosity is a very important word and I tell a lot of people who want to get into journalism that if like you know, it's the most important I in fact call it a virtue to have in the industry because if you're not curious about everything you see that moves it is troublesome at times because it also means that you go for um, like dinner with your wife and you're more curious about what's happening on the adjoining table rather than your own but you know but that that seriously is the center point of everything and including the story so uh it wasn't so much that I wanted to meet my hero it was seriously this curiosity over what happened to this guy so like you know I, like I I still do like when you go on a tour you list down names of people like depending on where you're going of who you would want to meet and this was 2011 my first trip of the west indies so uh when i saw that i was going to jamaica there like a bunch of names in patrick was you know right on top because i had not heard or read about him anywhere there was nothing on google or nothing back then so you know you know what you're so right like even to do a research on what i'm going to talk to you your article itself is a big research point crickinfo has barely four articles and out of those two yeah. are not even about him So there's yeah, really exactly. not much there was such a missing link and you really have I think added a dimension to a lot of Patterson fans all over the world to bring <laughs> no, Thanks that. so much for that. No yeah. that, that, that's 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 very meaningful because you know that that's something I'm sure you you'll do a lot of great work but that's one of the things that 
for someone like me, it'll stand out. I mean, what uh, that article brought to life and, you know, he's somewhere out there and you personalize it so beautifully. I encourage everyone, if you've even read that, go read this again if you listen to the podcast. So carry on, sorry. No, thanks. No, thanks. Thanks for that. But yeah, it, it yeah. So it was. It seriously is. That's how it started. So I was like, okay, I need to find out like what really happened to him. Like, how can there be nothing about this guy? Uh, so when I went there and I, I did the usual, you know, recce questions to ask people who uh, know about Jamaica cricket, like who, uh, like you know, who've been around journalists and all sorts. Like, and and they all said pretty much the same thing about how. Uh, he was maybe some said he was in an asylum some said like you know the most commonly used expression in jamaica is oh, him last in the bush yeah which pretty much means that he's he's gone he's lost for good but there was no proof of it like you know and then uh, it, it was it was interesting because at sabina park back then there was this uh, former west indies cricketer called richard austin who's uh, since passed away who was on one of the rebel tours and uh, he was one of the many guys who went on those rebel tours and came back and was completely ostracized by the Caribbean community. And a lot of them, some got into drugs and some uh, like, like became destitutes and some like, you know, and, and he, Richard Austin, unfortunately, uh, like, you know, kind of lost his mental capabilities or if, uh, sorry, if that is politically incorrect. And, he would just run around Sabina Park and just like, you know, with a stick and just say random things. And I think uh, other cricket journalists have also, who've toured the West Indies, have met him and written about him as well. You can find that uh, on Google. So I remember like uh, I was there with a colleague of mine and he came to us and with a stick, he would just point and say, where are you guys from? And we said, India. Okay. And he, he said something like, God bless you. Uh, and no, uh, God will take care of you. But Bishan Singh Bedi will die out of nowhere. And people are like, what the hell is he talking about? Like really? That? And <laughs> that's, yeah, that's and then so strange. He, yeah, yeah it's very strange. And then he just like ran away, and it felt bad. Like you know, you could not imagine a former international cricketer in that state. So, so at least, but there was evidence. There was physical proof of some someone having actually been lost in the bush or having lost their uh, their lives and uh, life and their livelihood. So. But with Patterson, there was nothing like that. So that too, like when I left Jamaica that time, I almost said like, okay, I don't know when I'm going to come here next. And so if I do, like, that's going to be my mission. I'm going to try and find him. Like, you know, it's not like, uh, like, you know, I didn't look at it as some great investigative, like project. I, it was just like, I was like, shit, okay, I have to find out. How can I not like. But that's uh, how, that's how things start. I mean, you know, you, yeah. you know, the best things are often accidental. I mean, you know, you start uncovering and you find more. So is there any anecdotes or any data that when he last played, uh, did he continue to play after that or he just disappeared? What have you discovered while uh, he, you were preparing he, for this article or this interview that eventually happened? No, like, so from whoever I spoke to, like, after he retired, they... He just like vanished. The last thing people remember remembered of him back then, at least one person I spoke to, was when India toured in 1997, uh, the famous tour when they were 81 all out. Uh, so when they played a test match in Jamaica, some people say like, you know, he came to the ground. He was still, he must have been in his mid-30s at that point and did some work with uh, some of the Indian fast bowlers. Like, I don't know whether he was invited or he... Uh, he like you know I, I have no idea and I tried cross-checking that nobody really remembers and maybe he was there and nobody recognized him but that was to be very honest the last sighting of that man like you know it was almost one of those dramatic 
documentaries. That was the last sighting, public sighting of him. This is 1997, and I'm talking about 2011 when I first went there. So, like, yeah, that 14 years was a long time. So, uh, and, and and that's pretty much it. Like, you know, there's no other anecdotes or nobody had seen him anywhere. Like, obviously, like, you know, there were these rumors that he was in, like I said, in an asylum and uh, he's done, done for, like, you know, done for, there's no, like, he has no family, he has no children. So, like, yeah, you can't track him down. So, the more I heard about how he could not be tracked down, the more I thought, nah, nah, nah. Like, at least still I find, like, a piece of paper which says where he's gone. I'm not going to give up. But obviously, that didn't, like, we don't make enough money. to. I, I couldn't just, like, sponsor a trip for myself to Jamaica from Bombay and go look for him. So then I said, okay, let's see. The next time I come here, I might give it a shot. And I left it at that in 2011. Like, you know, uh, I mean, you meet other people, write stories on them. And, uh, yeah, it, it, it's, it's, it's one of those things. Like, you know, you always have, like, a itch. Some people have it more than others, I guess. And... It just turns out I, I and in subsequently I found a lot of these West Indian fast bowlers like from Winston Benjamin you spoke about who now fixes boundary boards in Antigua, uh, Franklin Rose who came back from literally like having been uh, arrested semi-arrested in New Zealand and now he's there. Uh, even Uton uh, Doe who I never wrote about like um, you know the famous Dow uh, uh, shall not bowl uh, character. I mean that's the only thing he's known for. Like a lot of people, and, and but never Patterson. So you know it, that also kind of like got me even more like well, or, or slightly obsessive about finding it. No, that's that's really quite interesting. So I'm sure, like you just said, it. Uh, there's always a budget issue. You know, you all you're on the job. You don't go to West Indies every year. West Indies <laughs> don't come yeah. to India every year. So was it was this thing on the back burner, and then it kept getting reignited every time you made a trip to West Indies, or were you doing some due diligence whenever you could to make uh, inquiries on the side as you you know kept pursuing writing about cricket in your career? Well, honestly, there is no point of looking for evidence out there. Like when I wasn't there, because like that's all I heard from whoever I spoke to. Uh, even I would meet like. I would say interview a Jamaican um, contemporary cricketer and ask him about him. Some, like, you know, yeah, especially a lot of modern-day cricketers don't know much about history, and some of them had not even, like, heard the name, so it's just pretty disappointing. But, like, I, yeah, it was only, like, yeah, it was only whenever I went there that it would get reignited again. And, yeah, I mean, uh, and it the next trip, I went there 2013, and even the trip in 2017 when I finally found him, weren't supposed to happen. Like, you know, you talk about chance and things just falling into place. 2013, I was, I I just gotten married and like, uh, I was going to the US or coming to the US, I should say, in your case, to spend some time with my brother. And uh, and India were playing the Champions Trophy in England and they were supposed to go to the West Indies for a very brief tri-series with, involving Sri Lanka. And I just told my boss, like, you know, I'm here, so you don't have to spend much. You just have to spend, like, you know, fly me from Washington to Jamaica and then and back to Washington because I have return tickets to come to India. And they thought, well, that's not a bad bad deal. So uh, they agreed to send me on that tour. And this is when I took my wife with me. Uh, so and she seriously was not a big, it's not a big cricket fan. But because of my West Indian connections, I did tell her that this is now we are going to your real Sasural. And I don't think she saw the humor in that. <laughs> but uh, so she, we, we went there and on that tour and uh, the first leg was Japan, Jamaica. So as soon as we landed there, I was like, okay, now I restart my... And see, you also have to realize 
I'm not being sent there to find him. So I'm being sent there to cover Indian cricket for an Indian newspaper. So my responsibilities are to write about India mainly. I mean, yeah, I mean, you do stories. Like I said, you do interview people who are there, like other former cricketers or current cricketers with interesting stories. But my job is to like report on what's happening with the Indian team and uh, like, you know, how the Indians are doing. So uh, that's my day job. So luckily, the time difference always helps when you're in the West Indies because by the time it's 2.30, you're done with your work, 2.30 in the afternoon. Uh, your deadline is passed for uh, the newspaper. So then you have that extra time to, like, you know, obviously decide what you're going to write the next day, but also maybe, like, uh, indulge in finding people or finding stories. So by then, I'd, I'd realized that there's nothing about Patterson and Kingston. There's, like I said, there's no evidence. So there was a break of three days between Jamaica and Trinidad, which was the next leg. Um, and, uh, like, you know, I, my poor wife was like just stuck in Kingston, to be honest. And Kingston is, is a, an interesting city, but like, it's not somewhere like you can just roam around wherever and chill. So I thought maybe we should, we should see the slightly, uh, prettier parts of Jamaica, if I may say, call, call them that. And then which is basically, as you would know, in the Northern side. So we planned this little road trip. And then as part of that road trip, uh, like, you know, unbeknownst to her, like, I made sure that we were driving through, like, this district where Patterson came from, like, where he originally hails from. And my logic was if, like, even though I'd heard some people say he'd gone overseas or whatever, I, I assumed that if someone gets lost, he might go, he might possibly go back to where he came from. And maybe he's just there for whatever reason. So I thought... That was my plan. So I thought we'll go drive through that area. My wife didn't care. And if I find something, great. And that's how, like, on that road trip, it was like, and the roads in Jamaica are not the best, weren't anyway in 2013. It was like a seven-hour drive. And the the middle portion of it, like the three hours in between, is when we were driving through this area called Portmore. And I would just stop at every, like, you know, a, a, the, the, there would be a rum shack in every town. And I would stop there, uh, maybe buy myself a beer, but also ask people if they had heard about him. And this was like the seventh or the eighth stop when someone actually said, like, the, it wasn't the, the guy owning the shack, but some other customer who had walked in at the same time. He said, oh, you know what? Um, why don't you come with me? Like, Patterson, yeah, of course I know where he is. I said, really? And he said, well, I mean, actually, I don't, but I know where his parents live. They just live down the street. So maybe you can come and meet, meet them. They'll know. And, and in my head, I'm like, yeah, that, that was easy. <laughs> like, all yeah, I had to do was plan this. This is getting close, huh? You think you were in cheap? Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. I was like, wow, that's easy. All I had to do was this. So then I uh, we went with him. And then uh, this is nice little house, like, you know, uh, rural house, but very nice big uh, house. And then there was this old couple sitting outside. And the man was, I think, not in a wheelchair, but like, yeah, he he was on a chair. He wasn't moving much. And he looked a lot like Patterson. So my initial reaction was like, wow, he's aged. <laughs> and then when I went closer to him, I realized, well, it wasn't Patrick Patterson. It was the senior Patterson, his father. And um, so the parents just sat there and like, you know, and I was the, the guy who took me there said, this is an Indian journalist has come looking for Pato. And both of them almost got emotional at that point. And they started telling me about how they did not know where he was. And, uh, like, you know, nobody had really asked about him for years now. But, uh, like, you know, they were, a, they were surprised by some fellow from India with long hair who just randomly rocked up at their doorstep one <laughs> random afternoon asking about their son. 
but soon it got quite emotional about like how they did not know they had also heard a lot of rumors about him but and then his mother who and they're talking about a 50 year old man here you know like any any other mother universally she said no no him a good boy him a good boy don't believe all these rumors he's not a bad boy but i know he must have done something but how is this like wow how can your parents not know where you are i mean if you're still around and like i mean you can ask me like why did you assume that he was still around i don't know it's just like instinct right like you just you just think that someone's not going for good so um yeah and then like yeah i was there for like 20 25 minutes and then after that i remember writing a story back then about how he's gone like you know he's gone missing that is i didn't write about him in 2011 because i had no evidence here at least i could write about his parents like about how even his parents don't know where he is and like you know that's how that's how like mysterious all this is is and i remember that that article also got like decent like coverage like people were quite uh like you know intrigued by how someone can go missing like that someone who is in a way a celebrity right he played 30 test matches was had a name uh could just go missing to the extent that his parents didn't know so that was part two of this <laughs> like you know uh this whole episode and then in 2017 is when everything just like started falling into place and you know, i eventually went and met him now this this honestly i mean this is heavy stuff for the parents but i was going to put a lighter side but with no disrespect this can be a documentary if not at least a netflix maybe you should talk to someone or even go to bollywood <laughs> talk to srinath uh, sriram raghavan or something this is like yeah missing person and you know this is kudos to you so so again yeah. i won't uh, go into the article because the article itself is the original piece so any yeah. anecdotes about the man when now you have west indian players as friends i mean let's throw the speed gun out and let's give this younger generation a glimpse of what patterson is because legendary aussies like marsh still talk about jeff thompson being the fastest thing ever so what are some of the craziest yeah. things you've heard about patterson i'll go first i've heard something that yeah. he once uh, bowled a bouncer or something and within two bounces it went to the boundary i don't know if that's i mean but that that time we were reading cricket samrat and what not and you know yeah uh, yeah yeah <laughs> you know uh, whatever was said became gospel but have you said anything uh, had heard anything out of the ordinary about the guy like when you been covering cricket uh, just share okay. with the audience yeah i mean one was the greenwich incident i told you there is a young patterson and then there's a story about uh, him at the mcg when he comes out to bat and the aussies sledge him and he gets really annoyed and then he walks in to the dressing room that evening into the australian dressing room and just like points at whoever was sledging him and says you 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 you're all dead tomorrow and then like he just blew them away the next day i think he took like a six wicket haul or something and like and and he wasn't actually and one thing i realized about him was for all the like you know uh the aura around him of being like this intimidating like you know like almost the colin croft of his generation to an extent but just quicker Uh, like you know the colin croft of i would even bounce my own mother fame <laughs> like but he he was a actually a very emotional sensitive uh not a menacing guy inherently which is what i think played a big role in what happened to him later on in life but uh yeah but when he could get fired up like at the mcg that day <laughs> he could get really fired up so that's one thing i'd heard about him and of course graham gooch had famously said uh the only time i've ever feared for my life is when i was facing patterson like you know i could see the uh like his heel pointing at me like in the bowling action at the uh, in the delivery stride and he was just bowling really really quick uh so 
uh, yeah, those, those are stories that, like, you know, you don't hear about fast bowlers anymore because also with the IPL and all that, the the aura of around them, like, vanishes, right? Like, suddenly, Dale Stain is everybody's friend and uh, Mitch Johnson is, like, you know, pallying up to Virat Kohli or whoever. And then that kind of vanishes. So, it also it also helped, helped back then that it was an era where uh, you could have an aura and build around it. I remember just to digress, Brett Schulz, if you remember the left-arm fast bowler from South yes, Africa. Yes. When I met him in 2013, I was very worried. I was like, wow, he must be like, he would be a nasty guy. But he was the most jovial and like, you know, full of life character. And it wasn't like a case of he's become that after retiring. And he told me, he said that Kepler Vessels told me like, you will not speak to anyone outside. Like, it was almost like pro wrestling. Like, you know, he was like the undertaker. <laughs> like, always played the gimmick even outside, like, you know, outside the ring. Uh, so, and, and you could, and I, he told me I could get away with it. Like, because at times, uh, again, can, can I just like indulge in a, a little Bradshaw story? Absolutely. Go for it. Uh, so, one of the best stories he told me was like, so they were playing um, uh, like a domestic game and Eric Simmons, who then in uh, latter years was India's bowling coach, uh, was in the opposition. So apparently, at uh, Eric Simmons was batting, he was unbeaten at the, during the lunch break. So he comes up to Brett Schulz uh, just before they're going onto the field, and he shows Brett Schulz a picture of uh, uh, like this woman and two kids. And he he shows it to Brett and says, like, do you recognize them? And Brett Schulz is like, yeah, of course I do, Eric. They're your lovely wife and your lovely kids. Like, yeah, what about them? So Eric Simmons apparently told him, can you please think about them when you bowl to me right after the break? <laughs> and, and Brett Schultz is like, no, that's good. What, what do you mean? He's like, no, just think about them when you like, yeah. And then I asked him, so what did you do when you bowled to me? He said, well, I forgot about them the moment I stepped on. And like, you know, the first three balls I bowled to him were bouncers. And Eric Simmons was like, have you forgotten everything I just told you? I want to go back to them. And like, you know, I just cussed at him and went back to do it. Like, which is how cricket used to be back then, right? And and you could protect you could protect the business, you could protect the aura back then much easier than you can now. So that also played a lot into the whole Patrick Patterson character, almost the gimmick of Patrick Patterson back then. No, I think and, you, if I may just interject, because I want to make a conversation, I, you know, I want to forget, but I'll get a chance to speak with you again. But I think yeah. the way we can consume information as fans and the way we get encapsulated by certain images and you know how we uh, all have uh, our you know heroes we worship i've also realized uh, as i grew into a middle age now i'm in my 40s there are certain yeah. tennis players i mean i loved those tennis players like some of my heroes but the more i find out stuff in the tennis industry i'm not going to name but i yeah. can't say i like the man i like the player <laughs> and and similarly yeah. i think how we saw certain fast bowlers you know, there's this image, there's meanness around them. And a lot of times that stays with us. And then like in your case, you met with some of these guys and they're absolute joys to be around. And, you know, you thought this is going to be a mean guy who's going to just, you know, just uh, unleash short barrage, body line stuff yeah. and uh, and whatnot. But yeah, carry on. I mean, that was just a very uh, informative way of telling, you know, how these fast bowlers can be so gentle, like gentle giants, I mean, of the game. Oh, yeah. And, like, very recently, I got to know Mitch Johnson pretty well, like, during the Ashes and slightly after that. And he's the same. Like, you know, he is one of the best storytellers I've ever heard. Like, you know, and you wouldn't expect that from someone like Mitch Johnson. And just, like, one of the kindest souls. Like, he's so sweet and, like, you know, and he's more contemporary, right? Like, he's the, I'll, like, you know, I mean, he didn't say it, but, like, you know, but I'll break your uh, bleep, bleep, bleep arm 
fame. Like, you know, he's that 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 recent Mitchell Johnson. But he's just such an amazing guy. And that's what you realize, especially fast bowlers are, I guess, the most misunderstood people in cricket. <laughs> At least what I've realized since coming into the industry. True. And, and, and just going back to Patterson, it's similar, right? Stories about him were always about him being very intimidating, about like Gooch saying, I was scared for my life. But you never really heard about the the real guy, which is what, like, you know, captains and team managements back then wanted to happen. Like, it was almost uh, like, you know, and I'm a big pro wrestling guy. I know I, I'm in the minority these days, but which is they were trying to protect the business. They never wanted the real person to come out because then you would lose your, people won't be scared of you. Exactly. I mean, there's one one thing at that level, you're not really scared of the ball. You're scared of the person, right? And that's what, that's the aura they wanted to like protect and maintain, and, and, which... And I remember with Pato, I mean, he used to bowl with a backward short leg, which is yeah. not a common field placement, yeah. you know. And uh, Azhar, especially one of my favorites, would hop and he would set fields for them. And yeah. uh, and I don't know, those are like long, long time ago. But uh, have you reviewed his career or some of his footage from the technical lens? Like, uh, how would he have fit into like today's game? Have you ever thought about what was his strength? Like, how would he bowl to a Kohli or a Tendulkar? I mean, Tendulkar, he might have even bowled. Uh, at some yeah, point. He had. Yeah. He had, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean he remembered Tendulkar. And actually he also remembered not being very comfortable bowling to Chris Srikanth. And if you remember there is this video on YouTube where Chris Srikanth kind of I think hits him for a couple of sixes and takes him apart actually, you know. Uh, and this is Srikanth in his like, you know, towards the end of his career. So uh I think and it's interesting you ask me because a lot of people don't know about the fact that I'm still very much in touch with him. So even though the story is out there and people know, uh, like, you know, what state he's in, uh, he almost became my responsibility. I almost started thinking about it like that to the extent that, uh, like I said, Loki, I mean, the story was just one thing. Like, you know, here's a man who, like, you know, we connected at a very different level that, like, you know, I have not, like, I wouldn't even call it friendship, but just a different, almost, I'm his only window into the world. Uh, and I don't say it with like, any great pride or anything, but it's it's just what it is. So I still call him literally every other week. And we like I spoke to him even this week or last week about like where he is right now. And it's pretty much the same place where he is. He was at like when I met him nearly three years ago. And but I like helping him like, you know, get his memory back because that's the worst thing. Right. He's doesn't remember a lot about what he achieved, which is sad. Like he remembers all the dark times. But none of the good times. Even this Greenwich story, he doesn't remember. So I keep uh, reading out scoreboards. I mean, this is something, some formula I found recently. I am no psychologist. But I just read out scoreboards from that uh, of that era, especially when he played Sheffield Shield cricket for Tasmania or like when he played for Lancashire. And uh, uh, like, you know, and that way he recalls a lot of things. When he hears players' names, he's like, oh yeah, I remember he was this kind of a bowler. And he's asked me to get in touch with a couple of guys uh, and like, you know, said, can you like somehow we can have like a, I can talk to them. So maybe I'll like, you know, get some memories back. Not, not for famous names at all, but random guys who played, not random, I would say, but like uh, relatively unknown guys who played for Tasmania back in the eighties. So, which is good. And to answer your question of how he would have fed in this era, I'll just like tell you what he told me because he was, his father unfortunately passed away um, uh, end of last year. So, uh, so he's like, since kind of, he, he has an on and off thing with his parents now, like after I met him and like, you know, in, in the three years since. 
So when his father passed away, news got around to him. So he just went to his hometown, spent some time there. And apparently there they had a TV and they were showing highlights of the IPL. And he saw T20 cricket live, for, not live, but like T20 cricket for the first time. And he had so many questions about it to me, like, you know, because he'd never seen T20 cricket. I mean, he didn't know it existed before, like, you know, at the time when we met. So I told him about it back then. But so he was he was telling me, like, you know, about what he would have done uh, if he was playing T20 cricket. And he just told me, like, you know, this is kind of surprising coming from a, and who you would assume a very attacking fast bowler. But he said that, like, I would not have tried to get anyone out. I would have just, like, ensured, like, they were so cramped for room. They were so, like, you know, I would have just gone short of length. And I know they're hitting it everywhere. But I would have not even tried to get anyone out. And in that way, I would have got them out. So I was, like, actually quite interesting. That's like, quite you know, brilliant, yeah. I mean, yeah, so... And, and you so know, it, is, it's true to form because what I remember of him was a lot of ribcage bowling. I don't remember him getting a lot of LBWs or caught behind. I mean, I could be totally yeah. wrong. This is, like... No, nope, nope, 88, nope, 89. It was right. more like making, taking the time away from guys and making them hurry. That's what I remember yep. of Patterson. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And even like when you uh, study his career and his bowling figures, and he was never, he could, like, you know, you would have assumed the fastest bowler on the team would play the strike bowler role, right? Because that's what we're used to, like the Shoei Bakhtas and the Brett Lees and, uh, like, you know, whatnot. So, but. He was not used like that. He was more used like the fastest stock bowler. I think I call him the fastest stock bowler ever. Because uh, because you still had the, the Ambroses and the Walshes, like, you know, who could take wickets in many ways. Or at least who, uh, their captains, captains believed that they could take wickets in many more ways than Patterson. Patterson was almost that guy, like you said, who would just bowl back short of a length, quick. Uh, he would almost set the batsman up for, and it's not—he doesn't have a bad record. He averages around 30 with the ball, but he was never considered as a strike bowler because you had all these other guys. And I guess, obviously, I mean, he—he he would be the first person to tell you Ambrose was definitely many, many more times more skilled than him. And Walsh had his own strengths, but uh, and it's sad that it was towards the end of his very brief career, like in '91, on that last tour of England. Uh, and this he remembers because it's not a happy memory. So, like I told you, all his unfortunate memories are very clear in his head. And this, I think, might be part of the story. But he remember him telling me it was also Viv Richards' last ever tour. And they were in England. And this is when he had started developing all these uh, cutters, apparently. He said that, you know, I realized that I need to develop more skills to take wickets. So, uh, with the pace, he started working on this leg cutter, apparently, and the off cutter. And he used to practice them in the nets. And then uh, uh, one day he was doing that. And then uh, I think whoever the team management was back then, they said, uh, like, you know, what are you doing? That's not what your job is. Like, you know, just bowl quick. And that kind of fired him up. And he apparently bowled one ball to Richards in the nets. And, like, you know, Richards kind of lost grip of his bat. And, like, you know, Viv was so unhappy that he just, like, chucked his bat against the net and walked away. And that had a big impact on Patterson. Like, almost like, so what am I supposed to do? Like, you know, like, you don't know, you don't want me to develop new skills. Like, I'm doing what I'm doing and Vib's not happy. So, no, that's I a mean, brilliant yeah. anecdote there because uh, if you don't know Patterson and you go tra- do time travel and you see him bowling, he comes across as one of the biggest alpha males out there. But then Richard yeah. is also an alpha male. And this story is, yeah. is like gold. Like, you know, you're right. unsettling your captain in the nets and then you're saying, okay, what do I do next? So, talking about captains, I believe if he played till 92, 93, Richie Richardson was his captain for the last two years. And your closeness yeah. with Richie, have you ever spoken yeah. to Richard Richardson about Patter? 
I have actually. So when I this article came out, uh, I sent it to Richie, and then he actually told me, no, 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 I've already read it uh, because someone else sent it to me, and like, no, I'm like, you know, I'm so glad you found him, and I'm so glad he's 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 well and good. But you know, West Indies cricket is interesting that way, like especially from that era. Uh, like you know, this is the post Clive Lloyd, like you know, the whole Viv Richards happening, and then Richie Richardson taking over era. They're like, like they don't speak so openly about each other for some reason. I've never understood it. Like even in my interviews when I interviewed Winston Benjamin, he was not very happy with uh, Richie as captain, or like you know, for whatever reason. And also just the way they were like you know dealt with. You can almost then looking back in hindsight realize why. Like the team also didn't, like you know, weren't doing as well as they were because I don't think it was the same kind of the unity that existed, perhaps, or maybe it looked like there was unity because they were winning in the early 80s or mid 80s. I think it started like losing steam towards the late 80s and and heading into towards that 95 tour. Uh, like you know, then the whole Lara era started, so everything changed. But uh, and, and you see signs of it even now. I mean, if in the late 90s you remember. Uh, when uh, Hooper suddenly just turned his back on West Indies cricket and went away. And then he came back as captain. And then Lara wanted to be captain. And then suddenly Jimmy Adams was captain. So, And that kind of, uh, like, you know, instability still exists now when you see videos of Chris Gale and Marlon Samuels and those guys talking about, like, all the, uh, like, you know, rubbish that's happening with the CPL and, like, you know, all that. So I think the genesis of all that is... is ma- in, this is my theory completely, is in the late 80s, early 90s. And I'm not blaming anyone, but because they don't speak so openly about each other. Like, uh, when the Patterson story came out, my thing was, because he spoke so much about Walsh, and Walsh actually retweeted my story as well, I remember. And I thought, okay, this is it, right? I mean, now Walsh is going to reach out to him and, uh, you know, like, it, it, think about it, right? It's someone you went to school with. I mean, forget about playing cricket together. But it's someone you went to school with. So wouldn't you want to, like reach out to him and like, you know, and you're on the same island, you live there, but it didn't happen. So I, I don't know. I, it, it's it's funny though. Like I asked Richie a few questions about him, but he was just like, yeah, good man. Like, you know, glad he's fine. That's about it. Oh, sorry, I was on mute. So my bad. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, no, that's all right. And, I mean, yeah, this is kind of uh, very interesting to see, you know, the, the cultural observation you've made. And I, and I, I, and I, I uh, will add, like, my anecdote as a fan in the Reliance World Cup that was co-hosted by India and Pakistan in 87. Yeah. For us as young boys watching that, West Indies to not come out of the group stage with Pakistan and England coming out was, like, horrific because, uh, you know... Again, as, as an Indian, I wanted so badly Imran and his team not to make it. And I was counting on <laughs> West Indies to unsettle yeah. them. And uh, they didn't have Marshall for that World Cup. And uh, Patrick Patterson, Walsh and Benjamin was the attack. And I remember some of those yeah. games where Akram and Imran, you know, dominated them. That was the beginning, but they were still a force till Richards was there in test matches. But that was, like you said, the beginning for the certain yeah. chinks in the armor. Yeah. So yeah. let's make a quick segue now to Mahindra Singh Dhoni. You wrote a book about him. <laughs> Uh, again, Dhoni doesn't need a plug-in for my small podcast, neither does your work. But uh, what kind of work goes into writing a book about a legend, like a, you know, a global superstar? Do you have access to him and uh, what loops you have to jump through? Of course, you have Crick Buzz and I'm sure you have accessibility. But what kind of work goes into writing that kind of a book, just enlighten us here? 
Uh, well, a lot. It, it, because it's Dhoni, honestly. So the thing with that was, uh, like when Penguin approached me and said that, you know, we want you to write a book on Dhoni. This is in 2016. Uh, that's the year uh, when his movie was supposed to come out. And I, when they said, I was initially very reluctant because I said, you know, I don't want to write a biography and all that because now once the movie comes out anyway, it's going to be like, you know, that will become the story of Dhoni, or at least for the collective mass or the critical mass anyway. So I, then they said, like, so if you had to write on him, what would you write about? I said, well, it would be about unraveling the enigma because that's what that's. And then that became the, the lead in for the book anyway. So uh, because I covered a lot of Dhoni in my time, like, you know, I sound, make myself sound like some Buddha here. But anyway, so I covered a lot of MS Dhoni during my journalistic career, like for the Indian Express. And I always found him like, you know, apart from his cricket, obviously, I don't need to talk about his cricket, but like a very fascinating guy in press conferences or like, and I mean, it just so happened that uh, I, I wouldn't call him a friend by any stretch of the imagination, but we always got along. Like, you know, like, I mean, the, and the thing is, this is the first thing that we get asked, especially in India, when you say you're a cricket journalist, like, you know, they're like, oh, are you friends with everyone? And to, the one thing I've told everyone is I'm not friends with anyone because, but we're in the same industry, right? Like, so you, you know, everyone, like you meet each other, like on, like the cricket ground is our office, like, you know, like it is for them. It's just that we like, you know, sit in two different parts of the office. So you obviously get to know people and like, you know, you get to know some people better than most, so better than others. So uh, Dhoni and I kind of like had that kind of relationship where he was always uh, amused, uh, humored by me. Like, you know, I would mimic voices, I would do stuff. And uh, and there was the hair connection as well. So I've always had long hair. That's why the chap first chapter is all about hair. So, and I, I remember one of the first people who reviewed that book was a, an English journalist friend of mine who's bald. So yeah, he was quite entertained by the first chapter. Not, not really, he wasn't. <laughs> so... Uh, so the thing with Dhoni was like, so initially I had to figure out whether he would speak to me or not, because he is historically not done interviews. Like he has not given an interview to and like a straight, like, you know, one-on-one -on -one print interview to any Indian journalist since he became captain in 2007. That's never happened. So, uh, so, but like, you know, I had like some sort of a relationship with him. So I spent the whole of the 2017 IPL. Thankfully he was part of Pune when Chennai was, was like suspended uh, so I would drive down to Pune and because Dhoni with other cricketers, at least you can source a phone number out like, you know, again, because we're part of the industry and like, you know, contact them or email them or something. But here there is no other access. He doesn't answer his phone, as everybody knows, including Amitabh Bachchan. And uh, there's no way, no point of getting, trying to reach out to him that way. So the only way you could reach out to him was like stand uh, during, like, you know, on the sidelines during the, uh, Pune's practice sessions. And thankfully, like I said, whenever he saw me, he would stop and have a quick chat with me. So I would use those, like, two-minute, like, you know, I would drive all the way to Pune just for those two-minute intervals. I would get, when he would walk in and when he would walk out, just to ask him whether he would, like, you know, talk to me about this book. So he liked the idea of the book. And uh, he and and the thing with Dhoni also is he never says yes or no. He'll be like, dekhte hai, dekhte hai, abhi nahi, baad mein, and all that. So that went on for a while. And then Penguin was on my case. So eventually I said, look, uh, whether you're talking to me or not, now I have, to, yeah, thanks to you, I've committed to this book. I have to write it. And then he said, okay, fine. Like, you know, I can't talk to you. I won't like give you an interview, but I will. And his world is very small. So there are only a few people who know him really well. And they're like some of his close friends. There's a colonel out there. And some people who have observed him very closely. So he just opened up 
that access to me to all his close friends in ranchi and like uh, even the colonel outside so it's almost like weird like so when you approach them, and a lot of people have approached these people some of whom have been uh, uh, shown in the movie as well uh, a lot of journalists have spoken to them but like they have done interviews before like people who like i'm talking about people close to doni but they don't like go beyond a point unless uh, ms says okay you can talk to this person and open up so i mean thanks to ms like he did that for me like so uh, i was like you know so one of his friends got in touch with me flew me down to ranchi like booked a hotel for me uh, gave me like a like a ms doni tour for like 3 4 days introduced me to a lot of people and that was how it all started and um, and it was fascinating to just to find out little things about the guy because that is the little things that make the story especially it see so a with patrick patterson you're talking about someone who nobody knows anything about and then the, uh, the other end of the spectrum is ms doni who know people at least you would assume know everything about so it's like you know so it's about like finding something which is new and that's also a journalist see that's a difference between an uh, like just an author writing a book and a journalist writing a book right because we're just trained that way to always look for something different like you know to impress the editor of <laughs> all no, i think else. that's that's a brilliant point i was thinking to draft my next question and you came up with this exactly uh, the source here is ms dhoni roger federer you know the world knows about them but if you're talking about patrick patterson or some someone like you know even uh, you know the late raman lamba you know like uh, yeah, whoever yeah. you know then the world needs to know because then the story has to come from the source here yeah. you know the most intriguing parts are from a childhood friend or a school teacher you yeah. know like today the biggest legend about jordan is that he was dropped from like a school team and then you know he used that motivation to become the greatest basketball player so i think that's i think that's where you just highlighted and 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 the most respectable thing again we take it for granted is i mean the story at least for me the kind of patience you have to show to work with these guys to get a book this is almost like pujara like concentration You, you know, you're waiting for your moment. I mean, literally, that's what it sounded like to me. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and with Dhoni, that's how it is always. Like you know, with uh, and it's not just me. Any journalist who's covered Dhoni will tell you that. Like with him, uh, a he doesn't give you much in the press conference. So you almost like wait on the like you know wait in the wings and hope that like he has something to tell you even if it's like when he was captain if you had like some story and you just wanted it to be clarified by him at times like if he had uh, some kind of relationship with you he would always like you know uh, he would uh, and he he's a respectable he's not one of those guys who would walk away from you like if you walked up to him ask a question if he wants to say something he would always do that and this i had experienced even when i was a young reporter who like you know who hadn't done much international cricket uh, so uh, i just banked on it and it like yeah again it just helped that uh, after a while like you know this whole hair thing became a like a big thing for us throughout that whole 2016 17 period where, because wherever he saw me he would like bring up this ball cut layer like you know i don't know why and then like in uh, we went to the that same 2017 caribbean tour his wife was on that tour and uh she she heard him say that once and then she also jumped on the bandwagon she was like no no i also want to cut your hair and it was just kind of yeah strange <laughs> to an extent while the whole family was after my hair but it, but it you know it it's as silly as it sounds it at least formed a basis for something to build on right like you know to so so which meant that he would come to me anyway to say something silly about my hair and i would like use that time to like ask him something about uh like a little things right i couldn't quote him in the book So it is all about the little details about like okay I heard this about you from this guy is it true 
or like you know i remember once telling him oh you know in ranchi i met this people who apparently were your friends and like you know uh you haven't spoken to them for the last 10 years like what happened there and then he would just tell me like oh yeah this and that and then it just adds another layer to the book and to the person so it just really those little things and uh that that made the book yeah and like obviously like i wanted to touch on a few things like his whole uh interest in the military and how different it was to what you would assume like a celebrity's interest in the army being like most of it you would assume is a uh, based around like a lot of jingoism about like you know how india should win every war and all that but in his case it was more about wanting to be like you know it he what one thing that came across was like becoming a fauji was what he would have really preferred almost in a way cricket just happened like so his interest is all about like wanting to be there like one one bit i, I remember from the book about how the first time he ever went to like a like an army camp which is great thank courtesy greg chapel when he was coach and he took the whole indian team there somewhere near bangalore so when the first thing dhoni did was like go and like you know spend like a few minutes where the night sentry stands because uh, that's like the most uh, important like even though you're the junior most guy apparently gets sent there to the sentry post in the night but at at night you're the most important man there because if you see something move you can't wait for your general's orders to like to take action you you have to think on your feet and do, like you know and that was the first thing you wanted to experience when you went there so things like that right you know and then the joy you would take in uh, just uh, like you know escaping the people in the hotel lobby and going to his car and he would almost treat it like some secret mission so little things like right? i mean sounds like a little boy who who's like you know wants some adventure in life but those are the things about the whole military aspect of him and that's why i think that's the longest chapter in the book because there are all these little like wonderful anecdotes i got about his interest in the military and uh, and those are things that people kind of know about but not to any great detail so yeah that kind of helped the fact that he gave me access to all these people and uh, thankfully then he also uh, like you know i sent a couple of copies of the book when it was just about to be launched we didn't do like a big book launch book launch and all that i sent a couple of copies with another friend uh, uh, when india was touring england in 2018 and both the like you know ms and sakshi posed with it and that became the unofficial book launch i didn't have to like do a function and all that if dhoni posts with a book on dhoni i thought yeah, that's good enough for me <laughs> so that helped now oh, there you go so again anyone who hasn't uh, read the book uh, you know it's out there the dhoni touch and uh, follow bharat uh, for his uh, you know informative articles and uh, uh, this is a very fascinating conversation i beg for 50 minutes we are uh, closing in on an hour uh, bharat thanks uh, for doing this uh, and uh, i hope to bring you back in the podcast because you know you are already giving me so many ideas what topics we can explore if you agree for another another visit uh no problem at all i had lots of fun like like i told you at the start like i love talking so just like press the play button and i'm all i'm all for you know no, it's it's good fun talking about these things because when you're actually doing it you don't realize all this right like so when you are and we are always the ones who are asking questions of people and like you know uh, on the other side of the fence like so often when you get asked about like you know why you did this or how you did this then that's when you realize oh this is what this is this was the whole rationale behind me doing this or speaking to some so thanks thanks so much to you actually for Uh, putting me on the spot for the change. No, this was good. I, I learned quite a lot, and hopefully, whoever tunes in here appreciates the kind of work you know this kind of journalism requires. And uh, yeah, and Patrick Patterson, you know, that's such a treat. That whole story is 
is uh, at so many angles. So yeah, thanks for doing that story and thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much.